Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Have you heard of Semele and the moment of lightning? Have you heard the story of Semele? Who longed to see right into the heart of all things? Have you heard? Have you heard the story of Semele? Who wanted to know the secret heart of nature? Have you heard of Semele who longed to see the world unclothed? And so was herself rid of her own skin? Have you heard? Have you heard of Semele and the moment of lightning when all was burned away? This, my beloved, this, 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 my beloved, is the story of Semele. This is the story of Semele. Semele, so it is said, so it is said, so long ago, so long ago, so, so long ago. Semele was the daughter of Cadmus and Harmony, a princess of Thebes. Thebes, the city at the center of life. And we sing to her, we mourn her, we invoke her, Semele, Semele. Semele, the young princess, served in the temple of Zeus. Young priestess of Zeus, servant of the eternal, blazing light of nature. Doubtless she poured libations upon the altar, hour after hour after hour. Flowing water, trickling milk, wine, barley, blood, honey, yogurt, oil, and butter. Doubtless she lit burnt offerings on the altar. Fragrant pine resins on the altar, myrrh upon the altar, incense on the altar. Doubtless she felt the cool stone of the altar against her cheek as she kneeled and murmured in adoration. Adoration to the blazing light of nature. Hollow tubes of fulgurite and coins of silver between her fingers. The residue of burnt offerings caked her fingers the iron of goat blood under her fingernails, charcoal and milk and honey and blood under her fingers. Doubtless she sang of fires that never dimmed. Doubtless she sang one voice amidst a chorus of voices, a chorus of voices that sang of lightning and eternity, a chorus of women's voices that sang of lightning and eternity. Doubtless her hair was bound by day and set free by night, Doubtless her feet knew the touch of cool stone. Doubtless she shed tears on the fire pit of the altar. Warm tears, warm ash. Doubtless she sang. Doubtless she cried. Semele, can you see her? 
how she longed for a moment, a moment of eternity, how she longed for a moment of lightning, how she longed for a moment of lightning. One night, Semele had a dream, and in that dream there was a tree, a fruiting tree against a stormy sky. You've seen that, perhaps, the fruiting tree against the stormy sky. And the storm came to the sound of drums and pipes. The storm came and the tree was ripped to shreds, but one fruit was saved. She woke and she knew the tree was her, and the storm was the great god himself. So she went to the temple priests and asked what she should do, and they instructed her to sacrifice a great bull to Zeus, to satiate his hunger, perhaps to try to stave off the inevitable a little longer. What was the moment of her undoing, we might ask later, Was it the moment of the dream? Was it the moment of sacrifice? Or was it something she knew was coming all along? As if her whole life, the songs of longing, one voice among many calling, the blood and milk and honey caked upon the altar, the hair bound by day and unbound by night, her whole life was funneling her towards one moment, one unitary event. There's a feeling after the sacrifice of post-sacrifice trance. The urgency, the beauty, the horror, the bellowing, the singing, fear and wonder and submission and pain in the eye of the great ox. There is a feeling. Semele stumbled, perhaps, from the altar. Her tunic soaked in bull's blood, she went to the temple spring to wash herself, hands trembling, still singing words of lightning and eternity. Still singing words of lightning and eternity, she went to the temple spring, and clear water running, she sang, the blood trickling down her legs as she sang. And then, nature stirred. The nostrils of the great god flared at the scent of sacrificial blood. He saw her there, hair like wheat, caked in blood and charcoal and myrrh and milk and water. Nature stirred. Something was calling her home. That night he came to her as a bull. The next night, a panther, he came as climbing ivy. He came as a rain of milk and honey and wine. He came as a serpent with a flickering tongue. He came in glimpses, flashes, brief unions that only happened under cover of night. Occasionally, he lingered and they whispered to each other in the darkness. And in those conversations, she heard a voice like the rumble of distant thunder and felt a breeze of breath that stirs all the green foliage in the world, and a glimpse of eyes that shine forever and ever. Eyes that shine forever and ever. 
and a sound of rivers of milk and honey. Quote, A dribble of nectar trickling down onto her lips intoxicated her. All the while vine leaves were sprouting up on the bed, and there was a sound of drums beating in the darkness. The earth laughed. I think I have united with a god, she whispered to her fellow priestesses finally when she could bear the secret no longer. I think I have united with Zeus. Some chuckled to themselves, some gazed in wonder, for she did seem to shine a bit brighter. But one said, how do you know it was Zeus? How can you be sure? All you've seen are fleeting shadows in the dark, glimpses of so-called union. Are you sure? How is one sure in a world of constant chatter? How is one sure that one has tasted infinity? How is one sure? The next night he arrived, but Semele did not rush to greet him as she normally did. She asked instead for him to grant her a wish, a single, simple wish. I shall, he said, grant you anything. Anything you want, I swear upon the river Styx, the stream that transports souls into infinity. What is it you wish? And Semele said, I long to see you in your true form. Reveal yourself to me. Have you ever said this to the world? Have you ever said this to the sky of stars? Have you ever said this to the great mountain vistas? Have you ever said this to the sea? Reveal yourself to me. I long to see you as you really are. I long for a vision of the great universal mystery body that is you. All form, for all time, here, now, forever. Reveal yourself to me. Reluctantly, Zeus complied. He turned up the slightest corner of the robe of the sky of spatio-temporal realities so Semele could catch the smallest glimpse of eternity. And that's when it happened. There, at that moment, there is the moment of lightning. It's brighter than we think. It's vaster than we think. Semele, as we know Semele, was immediately incinerated to ash. Gone was Semele's body, gone, gone in an instant. Gone was Semele's body, the feet that trod the temple floors, the caked grime of burnt offerings under the fingernails, the hair like wheat, the searching eyes. Gone was Semele's body, gone to ash. 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 And in the center of the pile of ash, born of white hot fire, a single fruit. An infant, still premature, like a wet blue globe amidst a petrified web of scalding sand. And Zeus, his father, took him and sewed him up inside his own body, sewn into the body of the generative force of nature itself, 
until he was born again on a bed of ivy. And Eno and Mistus found him in a purple cloak and wrapped him in their own drumskins and raised him among the rain nymphs. And he grew riding leopards for sport and grew and grew and grew and became the power of rapture itself. Dionysus. Trance, rapture, born of one unitary event when one self perished in a flash and another was born. This moment is, in mythological reckoning, the holiest of moments. It lives at the center of the mystery schools because it's what souls, they say, are ultimately longing for, to feel joined, to feel home. The unitary event, destruction, regeneration, and illumination all at once, like shedding an old skin, shedding old habitual patterning, and joining instead with an eternal column. Time, space, fury, buzzing, humming, shining, ablaze, the unitary event of lightning. And what's important here, as you've heard me say many times on this podcast, is that this lightning is not a metaphor. It's felt somatic experience, the flashing, buzzing, luminous, encompassing blaze of high, high trance. The controlled seizure, the pituitary event, as Joseph Sansonese calls it, lightning and trance share a deep relationship that spans thousands of years and dozens of cultures across the world. You find this relationship deeply articulated in the Kalahari at the heart of the oldest continuous culture on the planet. You find it in the Sufi traditions. You find it in the trance cults that spanned ancient Greece and Central Asia. You find it in Tibet. And of course, you find it in full expression in India. In India, the traditions of Kundalini revolve around this experience of interiorized lightning. So the traditions that truly know trance, that truly know rapture, that truly understand the physiology of divine experience, spend a lot of time speaking about lightning, invoking lightning, and ultimately seeking to transform the individual into a vessel that can handle a steady flow of lightning. And the mythic figures that are the gatekeepers to this flow of energy are the most revered, holiest, often most secret figures in global tradition. Semele's longing to see reality unclothed is the longing for the individual to know the heart of reality, to be utterly subsumed into the body of the cosmos. So Semele's longing is the holiest, most sacred thing that ever could be. Semele, Kundalini, and the path of interiorized lightning, this time on the Emerald. <laughs> ever been near enough to lightning to have witnessed its power, then you know full well the power of lightning. The change in the air, the buzz and the crack, the hiss, the power. 
There are over three million flashes of lightning hitting the planet every day. A hundred more in the three seconds since I started this sentence, and now, a hundred more. For me, I have a healthy respect for lightning that sometimes borders on fear, especially when I'm above timberline. It comes from a camping trip when I was about 22 that involved three consecutive days of dodging lightning. It's no wonder lightning is synonymous with power in the pantheons of so many cultures. It was probably before modern explosives the single most powerful and dramatic event human beings would witness on a regular basis. So you have lightning gods on six of the seven continents. From Sumeria to Mesoamerica to the Amazon to Cambodia, you have mighty gods like Thor and Yayayas, and of course Zeus wielding lightning as a formidable weapon. But it's not as simple in the myths as lightning equating to brute force, and this is where stories like Semele's tend to get lost because it gets filed away as another story of all-powerful gods zapping someone with lightning as a kind of punishment. And that's not the heart of the story of Semele. To give Semele her due, we have to first do a little bit of cultural unpacking around the force of nature known as Zeus. So these days, when we hear about Zeus, we think maybe angry sky god, moody, adulterer, always cheating on Hera with some nymph or other, patriarchal perhaps, primitive. Ooh, look, he's got thunderbolts as weapons. How very macho! And those thunderbolts are used as what punishment, right? So so and so did this, and then Zeus fried him with lightning. Zeus's lightning becomes something to instill fear in the young ones. Step out of line, and Zeus will fry you too. But Zeus, for the practitioner of the mysteries, is much, much more than this. Zeus is the generative power of nature itself—the oneness, the brilliance, the luminosity, the power, the power that moves. As if we could ask this universe to show us what it really is underneath. If we could see into the atomic forces driving all things, we'd see what in India is called the Kalagni, the fire of time, an infinite column of lightning, an axis of blaze. If we could dissolve, if our small selves could dissolve into the absolute, into one unitary event, this would be joining with Zeus, whose name means light and also means life. Uniting with the force of life, luminosity, the generative power of nature—what we've all been seeking all along—and so Zeus, too, was felt. His isn't just the case of an angry god hanging out in the sky, detached from humanity, zapping people with lightning. Zeus was sung to, and loved, and adored, and cherished in awe and wonder, and music and drums were played for him. And there was dancing in praise of the shining axis of all that is. Orpheus sings of quote, Zeus's omnipotence, his supreme transcendence of the cosmic order. Zeus was the first, Zeus last, Zeus of the bright lightning's bolt. Zeus at the head, Zeus at the middle. From Zeus all things are made. Zeus, the king, the beginning, the ruler of all. Of the bright lightning's bolt, 
And so the devotees of Zeus gathered on the very summit of Mount Lycaon, where there was a temple to Zeus right at his birthplace. Great ceremonies were held in athletic games and song and dance and ritualized shape-shifting. It was a holy, holy place, this high summit amidst the striking lightning. And there was one particular spot, one place, so holy, no one was even allowed to step inside. For if they did, they would die in a unitary blaze. No shadows were cast in that spot, it was said. It was eternal, inalterable light, the birthplace of light itself. As Laszlo Foldenyi recounts in his beautiful chapter on Zeus and Semele, quote, Pausanias tells us that in the Arcadian Lycaon there was a holy site of Zeus that was out of bounds for all, the Lycaos. If entering this site despite the warning, human or animal would not be able to cast a shadow because light originates there. In Lycaos, home of thundering Zeus, the all-destroying light of lightning is incessant and must have been akin to the seed of Heraclitus's everlasting fire the hearth of the universe, the house of Zeus, the mother of God, and the altar, the encounter and measure of nature. Whoever settles at this hearth can rightly sense that they have arrived at the source of existence. In order for this to happen, one has to say farewell to the world of shadows. Far from the world and close to the fire, this is the moment of divine experience. End quote. The birthplace of light, the archaeological record shows worship dating back 5,000 years, an ash altar with offerings, pottery, jewelry, drinking vessels, goat bones, and there in the sand, something else, fulgurite. Have you seen it, fulgurite? It's what happens when lightning strikes particular types of sand or soil, and the shape of the lightning is petrified. One moment of electric luminosity frozen in time. Eternity that casts no shadow. It looks like a freeze frame of the consciousness that has found eternity, a neural web of dynamic activity. It looks like the unitary trance event itself, the branching neurons suffused with light and frozen in time. Its presence in the shrine of Zeus on Mount Lycaon means, of course, that this was a place where lightning struck the earth a lot. It also means that devotees offered lightning back to lightning source back to source. Lightning was sacred, its residue was sacred, the ground it touched was sacred. From the cult of Pan, quote, in general, the ancients treated places struck by lightning as particularly sacred. They often thought of them as natural sanctuaries of Zeus Kataibates, the one who descends, and they named these places Enelusia, places of his coming. So across Greece, we find a web of lightning strikes that become points of sacredness. Some of the sacred mystery sites were sacred specifically because lightning had struck there. And why are places of lightning strike sacred? Because lightning is an emphatic exclamation point, a summary of the power of nature itself. It destroys even as it generates, just as nature does. It is luminous awesome, beyond our immediate control, just as nature is. Like the serpent, it has a zigzag shape that is dynamism itself, movement. And yet, the lightning strike is also a frozen moment. It is eternity and temporality all at once. Quote, The power of lightning is really mysterious. It originates in nothingness and turns into nothing. But while it lasts, it outrivals everything. 
Everything is subordinated to it, and by comparison, everything becomes void. A glimpse of lightning is a glimpse of eternity, and lightning is also life-giving, generative, fertile. It arrives with a downpour of rain that creates life, and therefore lightning is a seed-sower. From the Rig Veda, quote, the winds blow forth, the lightning bolts fly. The plants shoot up, the sun swells, refreshment arises for all creation. When Parjanya aids the earth with his seed. So the god of lightning fertilizes even as he destroys, quote, You who by eternal law has spread out flowering and seed-bearing plants and streams of water, you who has given form to the incomparable bolts of lightning in the sky, vast and encompassing the vast universe, you are a fit subject for our song. So the old, old Vedic texts sing to lightning. Aja Ekapada, the unborn one-footed god, the divine as a shining unitary event encapsulating all dualities and coming in the form of a single strike of lightning. Life giver and destroyer and resurrector of new life. So there is a deep relationship between lightning and life, lightning and birth. Mary in the Bible is impregnated by holy fire, by generative lightning. And Foldeni says of Semele, quote, Lightning struck the earthly princess to death while her son was born in the white heart of the fire, and so deadly fire turned out to be life-giving. The turtle dancers of San Juan Pueblo sing to the generative power of lightning, quote, Daybreak is coming from the horizon. The dawn boys are singing together in unison. The songs they sing sound beautiful. Daylight is coming over the horizon. The dawn girls are calling like trumpets. It rings out and it sounds beautiful. Way out in the north, the Okua create lightning. The lightning flashes followed by rain so that the corn can grow. Way out in the south, the Oilua create lightning. The lightning flashes followed by rain so that children can be born. So places where lightning strikes become holy places to honor the force of life itself who is, at its core, lightning. And the devotees honor this force of life by themselves feeling the energy of lightning in states of rapture. Initiates describe this interior lightning from Yulia Ustinova, quote, in the tablets from Thuri, the initiates state that they have been struck by lightning and freed from the circle. I have flown out of the heavy, difficult circle, say the tablets. So here, initiates into the mysteries of the one who is living lightning are themselves struck by interior lightning. The electric nature of it is the felt experience of rapture. That rapture is sacred, it is redemptive. To be struck by this interiorized lightning is to be released. Quote, the lightning of Zeus consecrates as it kills. When it strikes a man, he does not really die, or at least his death looks different from others. Once struck by lightning, a man is carried off by Zeus to another existence. This 
death that looks different from others is the death that comes with initiation. It is meant to be as close to actual death as possible. It is meant to transport the initiate into a state of absorption, a defining moment, a unitary flash, until they themselves perhaps become like hollow tubes of fulgurite, vessels for lightning, offerings for lightning itself. It is no stretch to imagine initiates on the mountaintops pounding drums and blowing pipes in the middle of lightning storms after days of fasting, having drunk the entheogenic ergot drink of Eleusis, wind howling, lashing, calling out to Zeus, calling to the light of life, to the light of life, calling to the light of life, calling, calling to the light of life. Quote, what kind of experience was it? Did it include sensations of being struck and purified with lightning? Feeling that one's mortal foundations were burnt is the strongest possible way to describe the annihilation of the one who lived before the initiation, even as a metaphor. And this is Ustinova here, but I suggest that at least some mustai, that's initiates into the mysteries, use the image of incineration of their past not only as a symbol but as a faithful description of their initiatory sensations of being struck by lightning or seeing the great light, which are characteristic of mystic or revelatory experience, end quote. So being struck by lightning is apotheosis. It is how one merges with the divine, and it is felt. It is felt experience. It is the sizzle, the flash, the white-hot burn, the glare, that trance practitioners describe around the world. Hissing, cracking, buzzing, blazing lightning. The lightning of rapture. Lightning is the trance event. Quote, Franz von Bader calls this the silver flash, which allows for simultaneous vision with both the inner and outer eye. Lovers discover each other with such a silver flash when setting eyes on each other for the first time. The gaze is most burning in the moment of love. And in German, the terms for lightning, for glance, and for moment stem from the same root. This flash is the flash of recognizing a lover, of recognizing the outer world and inner world at once, of creation and destruction and crisis that visits the artist just as the meditator, just as the lover, just as the seeker. As Paul Kalili writes, quote, Solovyov intuited that the moment of aesthetic creation would vanish or dissolve once we attempted to rationalize it. This moment is like a flash of lightning that stops for no one. The spontaneous aesthetic moment is as close as humans get to angelic cognition. So, Semele's story is not the story of someone who asked for something she couldn't handle. It is the story of the seeker who wants to know the cosmos and comes to know it through the power of lightning. The seeker who craves the moment of her incineration, which is the moment of her ecstasy, which is the moment of her vision. Quote, Catching a glimpse of Zeus and being struck by lightning, Semele must have appeared like a landscape shrouded in the light of lightning, adoring, frantic, overpowered and enthralling at the same time. Semele, who herself became fulgurite, whose name means earth and who then became a hollow tube a vessel for divine lightning. Semele's story is the story of the seeker 
who witnesses the cosmos in its raw, naked intensity, in its billion-year power, in its bend and its sway and its vibrancy, and then she passes on the mystery rite to all of us. She passes it on through her son, who brings the Bacchic rites that allow for all of us to feel the state of ecstatic trance, which is the state of interiorized lightning. It's difficult to overstate the scale and impact over time of the trance cults of Dionysus. I'm always trying to give a sense of scale and scope on this podcast because when we think of rapturous traditions, we might easily file thousands upon thousands of years of human experience away as an incidental footnote, and that can do a big disservice to our understanding of history and our understanding of what it means to be human. Rapture, as you've heard me say, is not incidental to human beings. It is central, central to life. The Dionysian rites provided thousands upon thousands, probably millions of people over thousands of years across Europe and Asia access to the state of rapture, the state of interiorized lightning, the state of thunder and nectar and coiling powers. It is possible that 2,500 years ago, a traveler from Athens could embark on a decade-long journey across what is now Macedonia, Bulgaria, the Balkan states, Turkey, Syria, Jordan, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Pakistan, finally India, and encounter Dionysian ecstatic practices and practitioners everywhere they went. Hear the cry, Aoi, Aoi, and the sound of the drum and the flute echoing across the great moonlit landscapes of Central Asia. There are images of Dionysus graven in stone in Karnataka in the jungle temples of southern India, across northern Pakistan, across the Oxus, and where the ivy of Dionysus grows, there is trance. Semele's gift, the moment of adoring frenzy, spread across the world like climbing ivy, like sheet lightning, ephemeral, milky white. Dionysus brought interiorized lightning. Bromius, another name for Dionysus, means the roarer, the thunderous. And it was said that lightning and thunder struck at the apex of the Dionysian rituals, and that the ground itself would flow with milk, and the ceremonial staff would drip with honey. The Mayanads of Dionysus were said to carry fire on their heads without being harmed, which may be something they actually did in ritual ecstasy, and may also be a recognition of the lightning that they interiorized through rapturous practice because trance states are states of interiorized lightning. And this is true all across the world. Have you heard the stories of the lightning epiphany? Have you heard? Have you heard the stories? Have you heard the stories of the lightning epiphany? Many are the stories of the lightning epiphany. The lightning of ecstasy. The lightning that strikes the seeker practitioner in the midst of rapture. The heavenly glows, the flashes of lightning and torches appearing miraculously in the sky. These are regular features of divine epiphanies, says Sotarola Constanandinidu. Quote, when Demeter reveals her true nature, changing her appearance from an old woman to that of a divinity, 
light shone from her skin and the house filled with a brilliance like lightning. The first time she steps into the palace of Kilios, she filled the doorway with divine light. Glorious is your revealer and illuminator who pours down the lights that confer on you the state of eternity, declares the Dasatir. Zia Nayat Khan tells us in his book Mingled Waters, for it is the eternal that confers lightning upon the practitioner. Quote, Sometimes the flashes are soothing, other times they strike with a jolt. Various colors appear, each linked to a particular organ of subtle perception. At times an outer event sparks an inner state. I saw numerous fires of every possible hue, fires visible to no one except those like statues, says Azar Kaivan, the Zoroastrian illuminationist. So if we were to make a map of rapture that spanned the world across time and space, delineating the cultures that practiced trance and depicting common threads of experience, it would look like a web of three-dimensional lightning surrounding and pervading the world, striking all across India, Central Asia, Tibet, Mongolia, Siberia, Lapland, Sub-Saharan Africa, North America, Mesoamerica. Is it a coincidence that the cultures most familiar with, most steeped in trance practice, have a common language of lightning? Is it a coincidence to find a common language of zigzags, humming and buzzing, bolts of lightning, roaring thunder, nectars, honey, serpents and spines from ancient Egypt to the Klamath Valley to the Kalahari? No, it's not a coincidence. It is the felt language of rapture. The Sufi mystics tell us that eventually the state of interiorized lightning, which may start in bolts and flashes, persists, lingers, as the practitioner learns to become a vessel for lightning. And this has been the great work of the trance cultures of the world, to learn how to be a vessel for lightning, to harness interiorized lightning, to ride the lightning, as one heavy metal band once said. It's a very simple shape, the zigzag, the wavy line. It is simple and it is everywhere. It's on 30,000-year-old rock murals. You'll find it on Neolithic pottery and in Egyptian hieroglyphs where it signified the movement of water and the vital current of nature and the serpent and it signified the sound the hum and buzz of dynamism, which eventually became the letter M with its zigzag lines. You can see it flipped on its side in the letter Z, Z, which hums with a similar electricity and is the heart of the sound that the Kalahari trance practitioners say they hear when they enter the trance state. The wavy lines on my wife's belly after giving birth to two children are imprints of the contractive and expansive power of creation. I saw in Brazil once on a young Samauma tree, one of the tallest trees in the forest, a whole series of ripples of electric green wavy lines stretch marks as the vital force of the tree expanded towards the heavens. Wavy lines are vibratory power, are expansive and contractive power. If you look at Native American petroglyphs from the southwest of the Klamath Basin, you'll find lots of zigzags, lots of wavy lines. You'll find these wavy lines standing alone as rivers, perhaps, or unseen energies, or snakes, or lightning. 
And you'll also find these wavy lines depicted inside bodies. Bodies permeated with wavy lines. Currents that exist within and without bodies. There's a congruity here that's worth understanding between the serpentine shape of water and that of lightning. Between snakes, water, lightning, and humming sounds, and spines. The lightning strike is a zigzag column, an undulant spine. The snake is an undulant spine, and the spine is an undulant snake. A milky white serpent in the golden tree of the nervous system, bristling like lightning, like a wild dog's tail, as the Egyptians described it. The spine is both serpentine and electric, and all the zigzag dynamism of the cosmos is felt and registered in the spine. The sight of a serpent might cause a jolt in the spine. The sight and sound of lightning might do the same. The lightning might bring showers of rain. The jolt of electricity in the spine might be followed by a flood of cascading hormones that feel like showers of rain. There is a somatic congruity between serpentine shapes, lightning, flowing water, and spines, all of which play central roles in trance practices that sought to harness the power of the dynamism of the cosmos, this cosmos built of wavy lines, practices designed to interiorize lightning. In Spirit Fire and Lightning Songs, author Robert J. David speaks of how zigzag lines were used by shamanic practitioners to gain access to states of rapturous consciousness. Quote, zigzag lines may come to represent snakes, lightning, or waves. In this regard, carving residual markings on the rock face assisted shamans in achieving a directed state of trance. Carving them in the shape of zigzags gave their supplications a sense of focus that was perfectly compatible with their beliefs that yahyayas, through the use of lightning, would make their spirit familiars visible and accessible. Probably because of the zigzag's resemblance to lightning, it became synonymous with a person's ability to see into the spirit world. In the Klamath Basin, the spirit lightning personified this very concept. The primary role of the spirit lightning was to provide the kind of illumination that allowed shamans to see spirits. David Lewis Williams echoes this notion that the wavy lines depicted in rock art facilitated the somatic experience of energy in trance. Quote, We may say that many paintings were less like a zigzag symbolizing electricity on a fuse box than an electric wall plug to which appliances could be connected. So we gaze across the world of trance traditions and we see a common language of serpentine shapes and spines and flowing waters and lightning. 4,000 years ago, someone carved this into the sandstone of the Pyramid of Unas in Egypt. Quote, It is created for him from the fire of his own serpentine light body. Its essence is an eye thrust out. With it, the holy aspects are revealed. You it burns. Rise, rise. The serpentine light body burns in your skull. The rising of the serpentine light body directly parallels the Indian descriptions of Kundalini, the coiled lightning energy harnessed through very specific yogic practices. The Padmasamita says the Kundalini bursts forth like a blazing snake. And the Garaksha Shataka proclaims that the Kundalini 
flashes like a streak of lightning in the mouth of the central channel of the body. The Siddha Siddhanta Padati urges the practitioner to visualize the Kundalini as 10 million suns rising out of a coiled serpent. And from the Vidnana Bhairava Tantra, quote, Imagine the Shakti, that's the vibratory power, imagine the Shakti rising like a streak of lightning from one center to the next in succession. When she reaches the uppermost center, three fists above the crown, there comes the great dawn of liberation. These days, often misunderstood, appropriated, watered down, fabricated altogether, at their radiant core, the teachings of Kundalini are designed to harness living lightning. Until one reaches the place, as the Yoga Vashista says, where the mind of the one in meditative self-actualization is as a thunderbolt. The adept's concentration is a hundred million lightning bolts, says the Kumarika Kandaha. And it's not just making up a metaphor. Notice there's not the word like in there. Diskowski's translation added the word like, like a hundred million lightning bolts. And, and I actually disagree with that addition. The adept's concentration is a hundred million lightning bolts. It is the point of universal fusion, the inner and the outer eye, as Fuldenyi described. It is eternity. It is Zeus revealed to Semele in the unitary moment. The adept's concentration is the place of the bonfire of the self, the nest of eternal lightning. You may have heard of Tibetan tantric Buddhism referred to as Vajrayana. Vajrayana, the thunderbolt path. And Vajra is a very interesting word because it denotes the brilliance and luminosity and flow of lightning, and also the container that is adamantine that can hold the lightning. Irresistible force of lightning and the impenetrability of diamond meet in the word Vajra, the Vajra path, the Vajra body. And so sometimes you hear people saying, well, it's called the lightning path because it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for how fast the path is. It's a quick way to enlightenment. It's the lightning path. Or it's called the lightning path because it's powerful. It's a metaphor. And as you know, I'm very fond of saying on this podcast, it's not a metaphor. It's a description. The lightning path is the path of interiorized lightning. It's the path in which the practitioner somatically experiences all types of lightning luminosities, flashing luminosities, pervading luminosities, sparkling luminosities, cascading luminosities. It's the path in which one feels lightning within. The Vajra bearers descriptive in the Tanka art come with their diamond lightning, the brilliant blaze of consciousness realization, offering practitioners the same experience of lightning within their own consciousness. So in many tantric practices, the practitioner feels storms of vajras entering the crown of the head. These aren't little metal ceremonial tourist vajras that they're asking us to visualize. This is a storm of flashing diamond lightning. The Shakti pot, the transference of energy from teacher to students, is like lightning inundating the scalp and the skull. So the lightning path is the path of experiential lightning, building a Vajra body, a vessel that can hold a perpetual flow of lightning. Kundalini, in the traditional vision, 
is not simply an electrical current that runs up the spine or a tingly feeling, a momentary spasm, a peppiness after practice, or something to enhance your sex life. The kundalini power is not a tool. Kundalini traditionally is a goddess. Like Semele, she is a goddess. The goddess. The mother goddess. Have you heard? Have you heard of Kundalini, the mother goddess? Have you heard? Have you heard of Kundalini, the mother goddess? Semele and Kundalini, who both bring the lightning event, whose iconography and ritual practice include all the hallmarks of trance cultures, spines that exude nectar, coiling serpents, trees of branching light, the sounds of humming and buzzing, the roar of thunder, the rise of lightning, who are both accessed through trance and ritual music and drumming, and right at the heart of it, who both share a story of an incinerated goddess. Like Semele, goddess Kundalini has a story of being burnt to ash, too. The goddess immolates in an act of single-pointed longing. From the Kumarika Kandaha, quote, Having stoked the supreme fire, brilliant with waves of raging flames, having contemplated it burning fiercely in the center of the mandala, the goddess sat upon the adamantine seat and recalled in her mind the power and energy of the fearsome goddesses. She burnt herself within the fire of time and became a smokeless burning coal. This wise woman, reduced to ashes, left the mortal world. And from the ashes, quote, the goddess filled with hundreds of nets of lightning flashes and beautifully illuminated by the lights of effulgent power assumed the form of the divine generative point. So, like Semele, her death is a moment of birthing. From this single generative point, she bends, she bends, she bends, she bends, bends, she bends. Shying away from her lover who is enthralled by her power, and in her bending, she gives birth to the universe. Bending from oneness into multiplicity. The whole of creation generated from her bending. Quote, she is consciousness, the blessed goddess. The bender and the expander. Constantly active, the energy of her divine goad runs, rolls, blocks, contracts, and expands. Dynamism. The goddess, quote, causes trembling through rhythm. She is the reflective power of consciousness who gives rise to creation, awakens the kundalini shakti, produces states of trance possession, and invigorates the socio-cultural mandala through ritual and cultural performances of music and dance. She is kubjika, the coiled serpentine power that when harnessed travels to the apex of the subtle physiology. End quote. The bender and the expander, remember those wavy lines, those zigzags that are the dynamism of creation that lives within and without the body? They are her. 
with lightning intensity, serpentine undulation, thunderous roaring she emits, devours, exudes, absorbs, expands, contracts, gives birth, dies, regenerates, individually, universally, everywhere, forever. As André Padoue translates, the great goddess, eternally present in the hearts of yogis, is also present eternally in the entire universe. Where she lies coiled up inside the root of all living creatures, dazzling like a flash of lightning, folded in upon herself, this goddess is Kundalini, the coiled one, serpentine, holding within herself all the gods, all the mantras, all the phases of creation, all pervading, finer than fine. She generates the triadic energy of the moon, sun, and fire, made of sound. She is the creative energy imminent to the entire universe. And what motivates this sacred dance, this play, this power, this bending and expanding? As with Semele, what motivates it is love, longing for union. The goddess sports forever around her eternal lover, say the texts. She longs for love, then bends away in shyness. She withdraws, then bursts forth with new lightning majesty. So the stories of Semele and Kundalini are love stories. They are stories built upon waves and sways and bends and hums and hisses and roars and howls. Infinite waves of love and longing that electrify the cosmos into being. They are love stories built on vibration. And vibration in its bending and swaying and humming and hissing and roaring and howling is love itself. This love and longing and devotion can be felt if we can shake the scholars awake a little bit, if we can shake the modern-day yoga teachers awake a little bit. This love can be felt in the hymns to her, in the descriptions of her, in the love and awe and fear and holy reverence that saturates each of the verses sung to her. And, you know, it's not our fault. We're often so stunted these days when it comes to devotional love. But the love story at the heart of it is the very part that really should not be lost. And the devotion that is born of that love is the key to the whole thing. What do I mean by that? I mean, what drove the initiate to undertake the experience that was so close to death that caused them to feel the strike of interiorized lightning? What drove the drums on the summit of Mount Lycaon that called Zeus the eternal column of light and life to strike his initiates awake? Devotion. Devotional love. The Kumarika Kandaha says something very simple. It says, the teachings and practices should never be taught to those without devotion. Very simple, right? And it's a recurring theme. The Christian text, The Cloud of Unknowing, from the 14th century says the exact same thing. So the practitioner of the lightning path feels, first and foremost, a holy, reverent, loving devotion for this redemptive power of lightning. 
what else would we feel for the very thing that might utterly transform us while it simultaneously reveals to us the secret heart of nature? So devotees sing to the goddess who is deep blue-black like thunderclouds with a radiant core like blazing lightning. They sing to the goddess that blazes, that makes of the devotee's heart a bonfire, as Ram Prasad said, and burns it to ashes, singing in praise of the great cosmos and of the interior anatomy of the devotee simultaneously in the way that only the kundalini traditions can. Quote, The void in the center of the palate, struck with the lightning flash of kundalini's power, lies supine. I praise the supreme goddess who resides in this void mounted on the chariot of the humming sound of the absolute. And I praise the unstruck sound who arrives as a blue lightning flash, burning fiercely and very bright. And I bow to the goddess who resides in the body of Bhairava's dancing form and plays within it like a lightning flash in a sky of dense storm clouds. And her luster is as that of a flash of young, strong lightning. Her sweet murmur is like the hum of swarms of love-mad bees. She produces melodious poetry in all languages. It is she who maintains all the beings of the world by means of the inhale and the exhale and shines in the root center like a chain of brilliant lights. So the love her devotees have for her is the love of existence itself. For she is this bristling world, this swaying world, this vibration, this lightning flash, so momentary, so eternal which illuminates our separateness from source and our inseparability from it at the exact same time. Quote, The supreme kundalini is the flow of unstruck sound that resounds eternally everywhere. This is the river that flows constantly through the sky of the supreme principle. Something so holy, so profound, we can see why the Kumarika Kandaha says that the teachings and practices should never be given to just anybody, not even to one's own child if they are devoid of devotion. And these days, kundalini is a buzzword, no pun intended. It is a product. It is a lifestyle accessory. It's, hey, let me grab a $20 green juice and head to my kundalini class. Much of what is thought of as kundalini, Yogi Bhajan's kundalini yoga that became the template for many of the modern kundalini classes, is actually a modern fabrication that bears little, if any, resemblance to the 1,300-year-old tradition of the one who bends and sways and arrives in flashes of lightning. And these days, she's everywhere. She's invoked at festivals and workshops. She's name-dropped in casual conversation. Neo-tantricas have now reclaimed her somewhat from the bhajan crowd, and 
now trauma-informed experts have gotten involved, as they seem to do these days, and people are looking out for signs of someone having a kundalini awakening, and lists are put forward of symptoms to look for, and instructions are given, and Facebook users chat casually about their kundalini experiences and offer each other tips of the trade, and all of this might be inevitable, and it might be part of the bending and swaying process of the goddess herself. And I'm sure many people have found their modern-day kundalini practice very helpful. And I'm certainly not here to say it has to be one way or the other way. I'm not an initiate into the Kubjika sect. I'm not a gatekeeper of her glorious tradition. What I can say is based simply on a feeling, a personal feeling. I look out sometimes at how she is bandied about and casually name-dropped and put forward as a badge of personal attainment, as some kind of accomplishment or individual differentiator. I look at how she is treated as a prize on the one hand and treated as a servant on the other, treated as a trophy wife perhaps pimped out to lure in workshop customers, and I feel sad. I feel sad for Kundalini. Because, well, how do I even say this? How many know that to speak of her is to speak of the holiest thing that is? There are shrines to her that I have had trouble even looking at directly. There are names of hers that it's probably better not to even utter. There are images of her to which the only possible alignment is with the head bowed. She's not a little jolt to feel, a little thrill in the spine, a peppy feeling after class. She's not something that's here to validate us or to reinforce our identity as a practitioner. She is the unitary moment itself, the keeper of the lightning flash that illuminates everything, who we are, what we're doing, why we're here, where we're going, how to get there. She is mystic experience. And how I wandered wastelands lost without her, wandered lifetimes lost without her, scrambling and scratching for a glimpse without her, her the bender and the expander, the stirrer of space-time, the beloved and the lover, the lit fuse in all creation, to find in this world of constant distraction and confusion, to find a single glimpse, this is the holiest thing there is. And so I know holy might not be a word that some of the listeners of this podcast use. It's a way of saying that when I look out across the yoga world these days, quite often I see what feels to me like a tragic opera, complete with cases of mistaken identity and potential lovers passing by each other too distracted to notice, and protagonists not realizing what was in front of them all along and self-proclaimed experts always cashing in. I find myself, like many, sifting through so much ancillary clamor 
and so much emphasis on individual opinion, and everyone's like a 10-watt bulb trying to outshine the other 10-watt bulbs. And where is she in all of it? Where is she with her 10 billion volts of shine? Gone in a flash, that same force that brings universes into being with the slightest sway also flits quickly away when there is no space for her. The old gods aren't impressed with statistics, says Martin Shaw. And I don't think they're impressed with much of the vernacular and dialogue these days coming from any side. What brings her, what calls her forth, the texts say, is genuine reverence and devotion. Genuine reverence and devotion. Through step-by-step initiation, through slow, 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 slow practice over time, and through deep, loving adoration. If nothing else, if none of these other things, then at least deep, loving adoration. Kundalini, the serpentine fire of creation that carries with her the power to transform lives, to waken hearts, to offer a vessel for tears of longing, the only possible alignment to her, for those who understand her, is complete adoration. The only way to truly speak of her is with a melting heart. The way one would bow before the altar of creation itself. Because that altar is hers. The void that it sits upon, the webs of lightning and nets of emeralds that surround it. The generative womb point at the center and the world yantra it generates. The singularity it ultimately dissolves back into. All of it is hers. Her the tiny ripple that sounds of itself by itself forever, that reflects across the great expanse of space and starry bodies, and reflects equally in the fine vibration of hearts that know love. Kundalini, if anything is holy, that is holy. Among holy things, that is the holiest. Have you heard? Have you heard the story of Semele, who walked the path of lightning? Have you heard the story? Have you heard the story of Semele? And did you know that she rose again? Beloved, did you know that she rose again? There is a lake near Lerna, the Alcyonian Lake unfathomably deep site of nocturnal rites and ritual gatherings and annual celebrations of the cult of Semele. We can only go there in our minds. We have to imagine what it would have been like. What would it have been like? Lamps floating in the water, light illuminating the midnight water, garlands of bright flowers in the water, devotees weeping by the shore, weeping, weeping by the shore, Semele, semele, they wept by the shore. And the droning buzz of the aulos, the flutes of the mother goddess ringing, 
Her story is sung aloud, sung aloud the story of Semele who wanted lightning in eternity, who burned in an instant and delivered in her burning the Lord of Trance himself. Semele, Semele, and the drums sound faster now and the pipes play and the footsteps pound upon the earth. And something moves within the water. Something moves within the water. A figure rises from the water. An ivy-clad god emerges from the water, holding his mother's resurrected body. For it was here at the Alcyonian Lake, unfathomably deep, that Dionysus dove into the underworld, into Hades, to retrieve Semele. Her son went there to retrieve her. And he did. He retrieved her and carried her up. He carried her up, and upon her emergency named her Thyone. Thyone, Thyone, the devotees call Thyone. Thyone, which means the frenzy, the rush of adoration. The point of ecstatic trance. Semele Thyone emerges from the water. Illuminated, bright, golden, and silver, she emerges from the water. Semele Thyone emerges from the water and rules the point of ecstasy forever. Now she is reborn. Semele Thyone emerges from the water and rules the point of ecstasy forever. Have you heard? Have you heard that Semele Thyone rules the point of ecstasy? Rules the realm of interiorized lightning forever. Rules the realm of interiorized lightning forever. First of all, a very special thanks to Serena Joy Bixby for providing the beautiful vocals for this episode, the vocals that really bring the sung mythologies to life. Serena joined us for the water series, and hopefully she'll be joining us for future episodes as well. Thanks, Serena. So, as always, this episode contains reference to many books, articles, etc. These include The Companion to Greek Mythology by Ken Dowden and Neil Livingston, The Yoga Vashista by Swami Venkateshananda, The Rig Veda, Mingled Waters by my old friend Zia Anayat Khan, The Cult of Pan in Ancient Greece by Philippe Bourgeau, Alteration of Consciousness in Ancient Greece by Yulia Ustinova, The Angel's Corpse by Paul Kalili. The 1992 Turtle Dance of San Juan Pueblo, Lessons with the Composer, Peter Garcia, by Hao Huang. Ride the Lightning, by Metallica. The Glance of the Medusa, by Laszlo Fuldeni. Dawning Moon of the Mind, by Susan Brind Morrow. The Vidnana, by Rava Tantra, Harish Wallace's translation. Vach, the Concept of the Word in Select Hindu Tantras, by Andre Padu. The Serpent Power, by Arthur Avalon. The Goddess Within and Beyond the Three Cities by Jeffrey Lidke. The Light Imagery of Divine Manifestation in Homer by Sotarula Constandanadu. Spirit Fire and Lightning Songs. Looking at Myth and Shamanism on a Klamath Basin Petroglyph Site by Robert J. David. A Cosmos in Stone by David Lewis Williams. And, of course, the Kumarika Kandaha. The Section of the Mantana by Ravatantram Concerning the Virgin Goddess, translated in commentary by Mark Diskowski. A note on the Kundalini text that I quote from in this episode. The text that I quote from, these texts are widely available and I wanted to give a feeling 
of the reverence and power of, of these texts. And the practices that are outlined in the texts are intended to be for initiates because they're very powerful practices. I think it's important for us in this day and age to understand the traditions of ecstasy, the traditions of rapture, and the language with which they speak. And also, I think it's important to hold practices that were traditionally taught within initiatory settings, to hold them with respect and regard and not do anything foolish. We've been having these twice-monthly study groups that are available for all podcast patrons, and they usually run about two hours each, and there's time for question and answer, and we go over some of the myths that are talked about in the episodes. And they're really a nice way to get to know the myths a little bit deeper and to go into some deeper discussion about the topics on the podcast. And it's really easy. All you have to do is sign up to become a patron, which only costs about six bucks a month. And you sign up to become a patron on patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. Patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. Once you sign up, you get an email that tells you when the next study group is going to be. There's a couple coming up this month. And again, it's a really great way to meet other members of the community, to talk about topics discussed on the podcast, and to really dive into the myths. (laughs) 